section ten of psychology of the unconscious by carl jung this librivox recording is in the public domain section ten it is easy to understand the maiden as a symbol of the libido used in the sense of causative comparison the snake in paradise is usually considered as feminine as the seductive principle in woman and is represented as feminine by the old artists although properly the snake has a phallic meaning through a similar change of meaning the snake in antiquity becomes the symbol of the earth which on its side is always considered feminine the bull is the well-known symbol for the fruitfulness of the sun the bull gods in the mithraic liturgy were called guardians of the axis of the earth by whom the axle of the orb of the heavens was turned the divine man mithra also had the same attributes he is sometimes called the soul invictus itself sometimes the mighty companion and ruler of helios he holds in his right hand the bare constellation which moves and turns the heavens the bull-headed gods equally the greek counterpart with mithra himself to whom the attribute young one the newcomer is given are merely attributive components of the same divinity the chief god of the mithraic liturgy is himself subdivided into mithra and helios the attributes of each of these are closely related to the other of helios it is said you will see the god youthful graceful with glowing locks in a white garment and a scarlet cloak with a fiery helmet of mithra it is said you will see a god very powerful with a shining countenance young with golden hair clothed in white vestments with a golden crown holding in his right hand a bullock's golden shoulder that is the bare constellation which wandering hourly up and down moves and turns the heavens and out of his eyes you will see lightning spring forth and from his body stars if we place fire and gold as essentially similar then a great accord is found in the attributes of the two gods to these mystical pagan ideas there deserve to be added the probably almost contemporaneous vision of revelation and being turned i saw seven golden candlesticks and in the midst of the candlesticks one like unto the son of man clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about at the breast with a golden girdle and his head and his hair were white as white wool white as snow and his eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like unto burnished brass as if it had been refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters and he had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth proceeded a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength revelation one twelve following lines and i looked and beheld a white cloud and upon the cloud i saw one sitting like unto the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle revelations fourteen fourteen and his eyes were as a flame of fire and upon his head were many diadems and he was arrayed in a garment sprinkled with blood and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen white and pure and out of his mouth proceeded a sharp sword revelation nineteen twelve through fifteen one need not assume that there is a direct dependency between the apocalypse and the mithraic liturgy 
the visionary images of both texts are developed from a source not limited to one place but found in the soul of many diverse people because the symbols which arise from it are too typical for it to belong to one individual only i put these images here to show how the primitive symbolism of light gradually developed with the increasing depth of the vision into the idea of the sun hero the well-beloved the development of the symbol of light is thoroughly typical in addition to this perhaps i might call to mind the fact that i have previously pointed out this course with numerous examples and therefore i can spare myself the trouble of returning to this subject these visionary occurrences are the psychological roots of the sun coronations in the mysteries its rite is religious hallucination congealed into liturgical form which on account of its great regularity could become a generally accepted outer form after all this it is easily understood how the ancient christian church on one side stood in an especial bond to christ as sole novus and on the other side had a certain difficulty in freeing itself from the earthly symbols of christ indeed philo of alexandria saw in the sun the image of the divine logos or of the deity especially de somnius one eighty five in an ambrosian hymn christ is invoked by o sol salutis and so on at the time of marcus aurelius meliton in his work called christ the helios the rising sun the only sun rising from heaven still more important is a passage from pseudo cyprian oh how remarkable a providence that christ should be born on the same day on which the sun moves onward the cal of april the fourth holiday and for this reason the prophet malachi spoke to the people concerning christ unto you shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings this is the son of righteousness in whose wings healing shall be displayed in a work nominally attributed to john chrysostomus de solstitiis et equinoctiis occurs this passage moreover the lord is born in the month of december in the winter on the eighth cal of january when the ripe olives are gathered so that the oil that is the chrism may be produced moreover they call it the birthday of the unconquered one who in any case is as unconquered as our lord who conquered death itself or why should they call it the birthday of the son he himself is the son of righteousness concerning whom malachi the prophet spoke the lord is the author of light and of darkness he is the judge spoken of by the prophet as the son of righteousness according to the testimony of eusebius of alexandria the christians also shared in the worship of the rising sun which lasted into the fifth century ah woe to the worshippers of the sun and the moon and the stars for i know many worshippers and prayer-sayers to the sun for now at the rising of the sun they worship and say have mercy on us and not only the sun gnostics and the heretics do this but also christians who leave their faith and mix with the heretics augustine preached emphatically to the christians known as dominus sol factus sed periquem sol factus est ne quis carnalita sapiens solum istum christum intelligendum putarit 
art has preserved much of the remnants of sun worship thus the nimbus around the head of christ and the halo of the saints in general the christian legends also attribute many fire and light symbols to the saints the twelve apostles for example are likened to the twelve signs of the zodiac and are represented therefore with a star over the head it is not to be wondered at that the heathen as tertullian avows considered the sun as the christian god among the manichaeans god was really the sun one of the most remarkable works extant where the pagan asiatic hellenic and christian intermingle is the text edited by worth this is a book of fables but nevertheless a mind for near christian fantasies which gives a profound insight into christian symbolism in this is found the following magical dedication to zeus the great sun-god the king the saviour in certain parts of armenia the rising sun is still worshipped by christians that it may let its foot rest upon the faces of the worshippers the foot occurs as an anthropomorphic attribute and we have already met the theriomorphic attribute in the feathers and the sun phallus other comparisons of the sun's ray as knife sword arrow and so on have also as we have learned from the psychology of the dream a phallic meaning at bottom this meaning is attached to the foot as i here point out and also to the feathers or hair of the sun which signify the power or strength of the sun i refer to the story of samson and to that of the apocalypse of baruch concerning the phoenix bird which flying before the sun loses its feathers and exhausted is strengthened again in an ocean bath at evening under the symbol of moth and sun we have dug down into the historic depths of the soul and in doing this we have uncovered an old buried idol the youthful beautiful fire encircled and halo crowned sun hero who forever unattainable to the mortal wanders upon the earth causing night to follow day winter summer death life and who returns again in rejuvenated splendour and gives light to new generations the longing of the dreamer concealed behind the moth stands for him the ancient pre-asiatic civilizations were acquainted with a sun worship having the idea of a god dying and rising again osiris tammuz addis adonis christ mithra and his bull phoenix and so on the beneficent power as well as the destroying power was worshipped in fire the forces of nature always have two sides as we have already seen in the god of job this reciprocal bond brings us back once more to miss miller's poem her reminiscences support our previous supposition that the symbol of moth and sun is a condensation of two ideas about one of which we have just spoken the other is the moth and the flame as the title of a play about the contents of which the author tells us absolutely nothing moth and flame may easily have the well-known erotic meaning of flying around the flame of passion until one's wings are burned the passionate longing that is to say the libido has its two sides it is power which beautifies everything and which under other circumstances destroys everything it often appears as if one could not accurately understand in what the destroying quality of the creative power consists 
a woman who gives herself up to passion particularly under the present-day condition of culture experiences the destructive side only too soon one has only to imagine one's self a little away from the everyday moral conditions in order to understand what feelings of extreme insecurity overwhelm the individual who gives himself unconditionally over to fate to be fruitful means indeed to destroy one's self because with the rise of the succeeding generation the previous one has passed beyond its highest point thus our descendants are our most dangerous enemies whom we cannot overcome for they will outlive us and therefore without fail will take the power from our enfeebled hands the anxiety in the face of the erotic fate is wholly understandable for there is something immeasurable therein fate usually hides unknown dangers and the perpetual hesitation of the neurotic to venture upon life is easily explained by his desire to be allowed to stand still so as not to take part in the dangerous battle of life whoever renounces the chance to experience must stifle in himself the wish for it and therefore commits a sort of self-murder from this the death fantasies which readily accompany the renunciation of the erotic wish are made clear in the poem miss miller has voiced these fantasies she adds further to the material with the following i had been reading a selection from one of byron's poems which pleased me very much and made a deep and lasting impression moreover the rhythm of my last two verses for i the source etc and the two lines of byron's are very similar now let me die as i have lived in faith nor tremble though the universe should quake this reminiscence with which the series of ideas is closed confirms the death fantasies which follow from renunciation of the erotic wish the quotation comes which miss miller did not mention from an uncompleted poem of byron's called heaven and earth the whole verse follows still blessed be the lord for what is past for that which is for all are his from first to last time space eternity life death the vast known and immeasurable unknown he made and can unmake and shall i for a little gasp of breath blaspheme and groan no let me die as i have lived in faith nor quiver though the universe may quake the words are included in a kind of praise or prayer spoken by a mortal who is in hopeless flight before the mounting deluge miss miller puts herself in the same situation in her quotation that is to say she readily lets it be seen that her feeling is similar to the despondency of the unhappy ones who find themselves hard pressed by the threatening mounting waters of the deluge with this the writer allows us a deep look into the dark abyss of her longing for the sun hero we see that her longing is in vain she is immortal only for a short time borne upwards into the light by means of the highest longing and then sinking to death or much more urged upwards by the fear of death like the people before the deluge and in spite of the desperate conflict irretrievably given over to destruction this is a mood which recalls vividly the closing scene in cyrano de bergerac cyrano o may peace quel est en chemin je l'attendrai debout et l'épreuve à la main que dites-vous c'est inutile 
je le sais mais on ne se bat pas dans l'espoir du succès non non c'est bien plus beau lorsque c'est inutile je sais bien qu'à la fin vous me mettrez à pas we already know sufficiently well what longing and what impulse it is that attempts to clear away for itself to the light but that it may be realized quite clearly and irrevocably it is shown plainly in the quotation no let me die which confirms and completes all earlier remarks the divine the much beloved who is honoured in the image of the sun is also the goal of the longing of our poet byron's heaven and earth is a mystery founded on the following passage from genesis chapter six two and it came to pass that the sons of god saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all that they chose byron offers as a further motif for his poem the following passage from coleridge and woman wailing for her demon lover byron's poem is concerned with two great events one psychologic and one telluric the passion which throws down all barriers and all the terrors of the unchained powers of nature a parallel which has already been introduced into our earlier discussion the angels samyasa and azazel burn with sinful love for the beautiful daughters of cain anna and halabama and force a way through the barrier which is placed between mortal and immortal they revolt as lucifer once did against god and the archangel raphael raises his voice warningly but man hath listened to his voice and ye to woman's beautiful she is the serpent's voice less subtle than her kiss the snake but vanquished dust but she will draw a second host from heaven to break heaven's law the power of god is threatened by the seduction of passion a second fall of angels menaces heaven let us translate this mythologic projection back into the psychologic from whence it originated then it would read the power of the good and reasonable ruling the world wisely is threatened by the chaotic primitive power of passion therefore passion must be exterminated that is to say projected into mythology the race of cain and the whole sinful world must be destroyed from the roots by the deluge it is the inevitable result of that sinful passion which has broken through all barriers its counterpart is the sea and the waters of the deep and the floods of rain the generating fructifying and maternal waters as the indian mythology refers to them now they leave their natural bounds and surge over the mountain tops engulfing all living things for passion destroys itself the libido is god and devil with the destruction of the sinfulness of the libido an essential portion of the libido would be destroyed through the loss of the devil god himself suffered a considerable loss somewhat like an amputation upon the body of the divinity the mysterious hint in raphael's lament concerning the two rebels samyasa and azazel suggests this why cannot this earth be made or be destroyed without involving ever some vast void in the immortal ranks love raises man not only above himself but also above the bounds of his mortality and earthliness up to divinity itself and in the very act of raising him it destroys him mythologically this self-presumption finds its striking expression 
in the building of the heaven-high tower of babel which brings confusion to mankind in byron's poem it is the sinful ambition of the race of cain for love of which it makes even the stars subservient and leads away the sons of god themselves if indeed longing for the highest things if i may speak so is legitimate then it lies in the circumstances that it leaves its human boundaries that of sinfulness and therefore destruction the longing of the moth for the star is not absolutely pure and transparent but glows in sultry mist for man continues to be man through the excess of his longing he draws down the divine into the corruption of his passion therefore he seems to raise himself to the divine but with that his humanity is destroyed thus the love of anna and aholibama for their angels becomes the ruin of gods and men the invocation with which cain's daughters implore their angels is psychologically an exact parallel to miss miller's poem anna seraph from thy sphere whatever star contains thy glory in the eternal depths of heaven albeit thou watchest with the seven though through space infinite and hoary before thy bright wings worlds will be driven yet here o oh, think of her who holds thee dear and though she nothing is to thee yet think that thou art all to her eternity is in thy years unborn undying beauty in thine eyes with me thou canst not sympathize except in love and there thou must acknowledge that more loving dust ne'er wept beneath the skies thou walkest by many worlds thou seest the face of him who made thee great as he hath made of me the least of those cast out from eden's gate yet seraph dear o oh, hear for thou hast loved me and i would not die until i know what i must die in knowing that thou forgettest in thine eternity her whose heart death could not keep from o'erflowing for thee immortal essence as thou art great is their love who love in sin and fear and such i feel are waging in my heart a war unworthy to an adamite forgive my seraph that such thoughts appear for sorrow is our element the hour is near which tells me we are not abandoned quite appear appear seraph my own azazel be but here and leave the stars to their own light ahola bama i call thee i wait thee and i love thee though i be formed of clay and thou of beams more bright than those of day on eden's streams thine immortality cannot repay with love more warm than mine my love there is a ray in me which though forbidden yet to shine i feel was lighted at thy gods and mine it may be hidden long death and decay our mother eve bequeathed us but my heart defies it though this life must pass away is that a cause for thee and me to part i can share all things even immortal sorrow for thou hast ventured to share life with me and shall i shrink from thine eternity no though the serpent's sting should pierce me through and thou thyself wert like the serpent coil around me still and i will smile and curse thee not but hold thee in as warm a fold as but descend and prove a mortal's love for an immortal the apparition of both angels which follows the invocation is as always a shining vision of light aholibama the clouds from off their pinions flinging as though they bore to-morrow's light anna 
but if our father see the sight aholabama he would but deem it was the moon rising unto some sorcerer's tomb an hour too soon anna lo they have kindled all the west like a returning sunset on ararat's late secret crest a wild and many-coloured bow the remnant of their flashing path now shines at the sight of this many-coloured vision of light where both women are entirely filled with desire and expectation anna makes use of a simile full of presentiment which suddenly allows us to look down once more into the dismal dark depths out of which for a moment the terrible animal nature of the mild god of light emerges and now behold it hath returned to night as rippling foam which the leviathan hath lashed from his unfathomable home when sporting on the face of the calm deep subsides soon after he again hath dashed down down to where the ocean's fountains sleep thus like the leviathan we recall this overpowering weight in the scale of god's justice in regard to the man job there where the deep sources of the ocean are the leviathan lives from there the all-destroying flood ascends the all-engulfing flood of animal passion that stifling compressing feeling of the onward surging impulse is projected mythologically as a flood which rising up and over all destroys all that exists in order to allow a new and better creation to come forth from this destruction Japhet, the eternal will shall deign to expound this dream of good and evil and redeem unto himself all times all things and gathered under his almighty wings abolish hell and to the expiated earth restore the beauty of her birth spirits and when shall take effect this wondrous spell Japhet, when the redeemer cometh first in pain and then in glory spirits new times new climes new arts new men but still the same old tears old crimes and oldest ill shall be amongst your race in different forms but the same mortal storms shall oversweep the future as the waves in a few hours the glorious giants graves the prophetic visions of Japhet have almost prophetic meaning for our poetess with the death of the moth in the light evil is once more laid aside the complex has once again even if in a censored form expressed itself with that however the problem is not solved all sorrow and every longing begins again from the beginning but there is promise in the air the premonition of the redeemer of the well-beloved of the sun hero who again mounts to the height of the sun and again descends to the coldness of the winter who is the light of hope from race to race the image of the libido end of section ten